Morning, folks. My name's Phil. Um, I'm the assistant pastor of Magdalen Road Church, and um, I'm going to introduce to us today our new sermon series that's going to see us through until the end of August in Exodus. Um, Matt's very helpfully set us up for that, um, and we're going to look at the first two chapters today. Uh, let me pray as we begin. Um, we're going to need God's help, not least because I, I'll, I'll warn you now, this is slightly longer than usual because of introducing the series. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we need your help at the best of times to hear, to understand your word, to take it to heart. How much more do we need that in weariness and when <laughs> this is online and when many of us have young children running around? Heavenly Father, we pray please for your help. Um, would you speak to us? Would you give us hearts to listen, to learn, to see your goodness, even in a part of your words that seems so old, so long ago, so distant? Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What is God doing when he seems absent, silent and uninterested? What is God doing? That's a, a question I'm guessing that many of us have asked before, perhaps during the last year or so in the pandemic, perhaps in personal struggles with depression or long-term illness. Perhaps as we hear stories about the terrible persecution that Christians are facing in places like China or Nigeria or North Korea. And it's a question we could ask now as we begin our series in Exodus. We've just read about several decades where God seemingly took a back seat while his people suffered terrible brutality in Egypt. And if we're looking for specific reasons why God allowed that oppression and hardship, we don't necessarily get them. And we don't necessarily get specific reasons for specific incidences of persecution or oppression or suffering today either. But we shouldn't despair. Here in Exodus 1 to 2, if we read it carefully, we find many reasons for confidence in God. And sure, he seems absent or silent or uninterested through much of these chapters. But so many little details of the story show us otherwise. So this morning, I, I want to draw out those little details, or a few of them at least, and help us learn how to respond when God seems absent in dark times of suffering. So firstly, don't lose sight of what God has already done. Don't lose sight of what God has already done. The people of Israel in Exodus 1 to 2 don't come out of nowhere as we've seen already this morning, as Matt's helped us with in the kids' slot, and their situation doesn't come out of nowhere either. These events are part of a much bigger story, picking right up from where the book of Genesis left off and continuing through the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem and even beyond our own day. This is a story that puts present suffering in perspective, and it reminds us that our own suffering is massively outweighed by God's past, present and future faithfulness and blessings. 
So let me just give a quick recap of the story from a slightly different angle to what Matt did earlier. Genesis begins with God creating a good world. He sets apart human beings to enjoy relationship with him and to fill, rule and care for the earth under him. It's an enormously privileged position to be in. But it goes very wrong in Genesis chapter three when people listen to the devil masquerading as a serpent. They disbelieve God's words, they doubt the goodness of his character, and they try to exalt themselves in God's place. But God doesn't end it there. On the one hand, humanity does have to suffer the just consequences of its rebellion. They're excluded from God's presence in a world that's now cursed with death and disease and natural disasters. And they also suffer the consequences of a world marred by human selfishness and exploitation. But still, God doesn't destroy humanity as we might deserve. Instead, he promises a saviour. Right from that first sin, he promises a male offspring or seed of Eve, the first woman, who will crush the serpent, the devil and rescue us from this misery. And even though a flood covering the known worlds does not wash away the incurable sinfulness of the human heart in Noah's day, still God waits patiently. And then he graciously chooses one man, Abraham, through who he will start to reverse the whole sorry mess of sin, death, curse, and exclusion restoring his original purposes for humanity. As Matt showed us earlier, God will essentially build a new humanity through Abraham, a people belonging to him who will enjoy his blessing in their own land and spread God's blessing to every nation. And we even see that blessing coming to the nations in the last chapters of Genesis. Abraham's great-grandsons sell their brother Joseph into slavery out of jealousy. But God turns it to good. He raises Joseph up to be the prime minister, or ancient equivalent, of Egypt, who gathers in the great harvests of his first seven years in office to feed the Egyptians and the surrounding nations through seven years of famine and even to save his own family who come down to Egypt to be fed. That's the heart of the story so far. And that's the story that Exodus is continuing. And we see in verse seven of chapter one that God has continued to keep his promises. In the time lapse between the death of Joseph and his brothers and the arrival of this this nasty new Pharaoh, God has made the Israelites exceedingly fruitful. They have multiplied greatly. They fill the land. And this is the language of Genesis 1 verse 28, which is repeated in God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17. This is God restoring his purposes for the world through Abraham's descendants. So even though we see God's people start to suffer brutal oppression soon after, we mustn't lose sight of what God has already done. Right at the beginning of Exodus, 
God has been incredibly faithful to his promises. And we shouldn't see his faithfulness as an irrelevant fact of the dim and distant past. If we are followers of Jesus, this is our story. Jesus is the long-awaited offspring or seed of Eve who crushed the serpent, Satan. Jesus is the ultimate offspring or seed of Abraham, who would inherit all of God's promises, fulfill them, and allow us to share in the blessings with him. So when we trust in Jesus as our saviour, God counts us as one with him in Christ. So his story becomes our story. His people become our people and his blessings become our blessings. This is a bit like the way it works with the Olympics, to give an example. So when the Olympic Games come round, the diverse and quite divergent peoples of Britain get caught up in something much bigger than themselves. Now, most of us aren't the ones competing in the arena or in the pool, but many of us celebrate the victories of Team GB or whoever you, your team is as our victories. We, we shout and cheer at our TV screens as if we somehow won together with the athletes. And we share in the disappointment of their losses. We sometimes feel really subdued or even let down almost as much as the athletes do. Their story becomes the story of our nation. And that becomes our story too. Well, with all its joys and disappointments. If we can see the exploits of our national sports teams in this way, then as Christians, we, we should certainly see the whole story of the Bible as our own. The faithfulness God showed up until those dark days in Egypt is faithfulness to us because we have become part of that same new humanity that he was building back then. So don't lose sight of what God has already done. Look back and thank him for it as you read the Bible for yourself, not least the Old Testament. The Old Testament maybe before Christ, but it is still a part of who we are. Thank God for his past faithfulness as we work through Exodus in these sermons. And learn to see your present suffering in that wider perspective. Our own lives and our suffering are only small parts of that much bigger story. God's faithfulness does not begin or end with you or me. His faithfulness is not measurable only by my current circumstances or even my past and future ones. It's measured by the big picture of what he has done throughout human history and what he is still doing all over the world, rescuing and growing that new humanity. Just as he promised to Abraham, just as he is fulfilling through Abraham's greater son, Jesus. So when our situation is dark and God seems absent, look back at what God has already done 
remember the big story, which is your story, and give him thanks. And if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, do you want to be part of a better story than our secular history of of war and colonial oppression and slavery and greed, exploitation of our planet and the the seething mass of confusion about who we are, that is man-made philosophy and religion. Do you want to be part of a better story, the better story that God is writing? The story where he gently heals us and teaches our hearts to love rightly again, not through harsh compulsion or peer pressure or emotional blackmail, but by opening our eyes to his own beauty and loveliness displayed in Jesus. Don't you want to be part of a story where he treats each of us as individuals and yet knits us together into a beautiful whole as one new humanity from every tribe and tongue and nation on earth. Isn't this a better story than what secular history tells? Isn't it a more hopeful story? Even if it does require humility to accept that we've been the cause of the problems and we need to repent. If you want to be part of that story, then come to Jesus, the one who is at the centre of the story. And if you've no idea how to come to him, then get in touch with us through the website or ask a Christian friend. We would really love to help you. Moving on. Here's our second point from Exodus 1 to 2. When our situation is dark and God seems absent, don't lose sight of how God is still at work. Don't lose sight of how God is still at work. So in chapter 1, verse 11, Israel's situation takes this drastic turn for the worst. God has multiplied them so much that the Egyptians feel threatened and subject them to slavery. And it seems like God just abandons them to suffer the consequences of the situation that he created. That was probably how the Israelites felt day to day as they were beaten, abused and made to toil away for long, long hours. Just as we find it so easy in the middle of suffering or adversity to focus on what's wrong to the exclusion of all else. I'm guessing that the Israelites did too. All the more so as things went from bad to worse and Pharaoh gave orders to murder their sons. Who would not be overwhelmed by the horror of such a situation? And yet, if we step back a little bit, we see that all Pharaoh's attempts to suppress and contain the Israelites backfire. In 1 verse 12, the more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Again, it's the same language as Genesis 1.28 about humanity um, fit, multiplying and filling the earth. God was quietly subverting and defying Pharaoh's evil plans, keeping his promises and growing his people. 
And that's even more explicit in verses 20 to 21, where God is kind to the midwives and increases his people further still because the midwives feared him and not Pharaoh. God delights to show how impossible it is for wicked people to thwart his purposes by defying them right at the point where they do their worst. And this is clearest at the start of chapter two. Pharaoh has ordered that all Hebrew baby boys be thrown into the Nile. And God's oldest promise seems in jeopardy. How can a male offspring born of a woman grow up to crush the serpent's head if all the sons of God's chosen people are murdered? The Pharaoh who wore a serpent on his crown seems poised to triumph, securing Satan's victory. But even here, God does something extraordinary. Now we zoom in, in two, chapter 2, verse 1, right in on the birth of a single Hebrew child. And in 2, verse 2, the Hebrew text literally says that his mother saw that he was good. And that's the same language used of God in Genesis 1, at the end of each day of creation, where he, it says, and God saw that it was good. It's almost like the child is a new creation or perhaps the start of God's recreation, the one who will lead God's people out of slavery to become, in a more full sense, his new redeemed humanity. God honours and uses the courageous faith of Moses' mother, hiding him for three months, to preserve the child. And when she can hide him no more, Rather than giving him up to the Egyptians, she takes another chance in faith and places him in a basket. And if you've got an NIV Bible, you'll see in the footnote of verse three that it's literally an ark. Same word as Noah's ark. And in this ark, the baby, like Noah, passes through the waters of death to be rescued by Pharaoh's own daughter. Now, don't you love the irony at this point? Pharaoh is desperate to kill the baby boys. And yet the boy who will be his nation's downfall ends up being raised at Pharaoh's expense and in Pharaoh's own household. Doesn't this make you think of the cross? The moment at which Satan thought he'd finally won, inciting the, Israel, uh, the people of Jerusalem to kill God's own son, was actually the moment when that God used to bring about Satan's downfall. Because when Jesus died on the cross, that was when Satan was stripped of all his power to accuse us of sin and hold us in fear of death. God still keeps his promises, even in the darkest moments of evil, oppression and suffering. In that sense, nothing has changed from Moses' day. Just as God's people were feared and hated then, so Jesus warns it will often be the case now. And more than that, though the devil no longer has power to accuse us or snatch us away from Christ, 
he still rages against us with the jealous fury of a sore loser, trying to deceive us and scare us and unsettle our faith. And we still live in a fallen world where the lingering sinfulness and disease-prone frailty of our bodies drags us down. One crucial thing has changed because Jesus has rescued us from slavery to sin and from God's wrath at sin. Those are wonderful, precious things. But opposition, oppression and suffering are still all around us. The full and final rescue is still to come. The one where Jesus comes comes back to take us home to a new creation, to that place where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. So in many ways, our situation is like that of Israel in Egypt. And like them, we can trust that God is at work in the same ways to keep his promises, to keep growing his kingdom. So when our situation is dark and God seems absent, don't lose sight of how God is still at work. It may take time to see it, it may take years, but see it we will. Just think how God has worked in China, where there were around 4 million Christians in 1949 at the start of communist rule, but that's exploded to at least 44 million today by official estimates and probably as many as 80 million because of all the unregistered house churches. All of this growth has come in spite of sustained and brutal persecution from the Chinese state. And thinking closer to home, as we face steadily mounting opposition to the gospel in Britain, even here in East Oxford, don't lose sight of how God is at work. Don't forget where we've come from, how our church has grown in the last 20 years, or the churches we've planted, and how we've acquired the old schoolhouse. Don't forget the people who've joined us, even through lockdown, who've been exploring Christianity with us. And don't forget the little victories over sin in your own life, as God grows his kingdom in your heart, in righteousness and love and obedience to his son. Don't lose sight of how God is still at work. Finally, when our situation is dark and God seems absent, don't stop crying out for rescue. Don't stop crying out for rescue. We've seen that God was at work keeping his promises before Israel's oppression began. We've seen that he was still keeping those promises in the middle of oppression and moving the pieces into place for his rescue. And finally, in chapter two, we see what God, what moves God to put his rescue plan into action. There's a very clear causal link in verses 23 to 25 of chapter two. The Israelites groan and cry out because of their suffering and God hears 
sees and remembers his covenants. Of course, he's been keeping his covenant all through these chapters, as we've seen. But now he's about to keep it in a very public way. And he does it when his people pray from the heart. Can you see how God graciously acts in response to his people's cries and not before them or in the absence of them? Of course, a God so sovereign that he can raise up a savior in the midst of such evil like in Pharaoh's household under his nose. It doesn't need us to accomplish his plans for the world. He could do it perfectly well without us. But he graciously insists on giving us a part all the same. He'd probably get things done a lot quicker without us. And yet he patiently waits to act in response to the prayers of his people, which are sometimes a long time in coming. Why does he do that? He does it so that we, we will see that his rescues are not some chance accident or product of fate, but the result of his mighty power and his deep compassion for his people. God brings his rescue in response to the cries of his people. And once again, this is not much different for us today. As we await rescue from the individual struggles, injustices and pain that afflict us, or from the opposition that we face as a church, we are not promised full or immediate rescue, not in this life. But just as Psalm 23 assures us, the pattern of church history shows that God does grant times of refreshing, those green pastures and quiet waters. He brings mini rescues, as it were. Like when the government listened to the church leaders in this country after the November lockdown and then didn't close places of worship in the January lockdown. Small but welcome relief. And better still, our God does promise full and final rescue from all evil and affliction when Jesus returns to bring us home. So what do we do in the dark times when God seems absent? We cry out to him and know with certainty that he hears, he sees and is concerned. We cry out with certainty that he is working to keep his promises now, even if he looks absent. And we cry out with patient perseverance knowing that he is bringing the right places into place at the right times to bring about both those mini rescues and his final rescue. And then as we're waiting, we thank him as we remember the bigger story, which is our story too. So here's a final challenge as you go away today. If God is at work, through his people's suffering. But if God graciously chooses to act mainly in response to our cries, why not commit to praying, even just for two minutes a day, for situations where God's people are hard pressed? 
Why not make a daily habit of praying for persecuted Christians, using the news feeds on Barnabas Fund or Open Doors or Release International? Why not make a daily habit of praying for God's direction as we respond to opposition to our building plans over the next few weeks? Why not consider joining a fortnightly prayer meeting for revival in the UK this Friday? I'll, I'll share the link for that on our family WhatsApp group later for those who want to. Don't stop crying out for rescue. It is in response to those cries that God builds his kingdom.